Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 20th of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host this afternoon, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, on Friday, we were talking a little bit about AUKUS, which, of course, is this new Australia-UK-US uh, defence agreement. Uh, and over the weekend, the Times decided that they wanted to give us the background to that. I don't know whether it's because they've got connections to intelligence services or not. Maybe Alex can comment on that in a second. But uh, uh, here is their headline, like a scene from Le Carre, uh, how the nuclear submarine pact was number 10's biggest secret. Uh, so what are they saying here? Uh, Australian PM Scott Morrison discussed the defence deal with Boris Johnson at the G7 summit, while the French focused on Britain's difficulties to export their sausages to the EU. So a little bit of sarcasm there. Uh, but uh, um, apparently what happened was that uh, uh, the job was given to the first Sea Lord, Sir Tony Radican. Let's uh, get him on screen here. There he is, Admiral Tony Rad Radican. First Sea Lord was sent off uh, to Australia to meet the Australian High Commission, or we certainly met the Australian High Commission. Uh, and uh, apparently the Times said he had no idea of the magnitude of what was about to unfold. Uh, they say that at that meeting, he was asked by Vice Admiral Michael Noonan, the Australian Chief of the Navy, uh, whether the British and Americans would help them build a fleet of nuclear submarines. Uh, the 12 Barracuda diesel-electric submarines that Australia had agreed to buy from, the, from France five years earlier, said the Times, in a £47 billion sterling contract were no longer enough to ward off the threat from China. Well, uh, I'm not sure whether that uh, gives us the entire picture. Maybe you'll have something to say on that in a second, Brian. But uh, they then, uh, the Australians came to the Britain and the US because uh, they were in the Five Eyes intelligence sharing partnership, unlike France, which meant they might be persuaded to give up their nuclear technology. Um, Radigan then went back to London um, and handed the whole thing over to, to Stephen Lovegrove, uh, who is the National Security Advisor presently, had been uh, the uh, chief uh, civil servant in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, and then the Times goes on to say that after the initial meeting in March, the proposal was put to the Americans. It took quite a long time to go through the American machine. Uh, but a source uh, told the Times that uh, although uh, that, well, let's have a look at what it actually says here, uh, that an excited Johnson was keen for something deeper. A government source said there was a choice about how broad it would be. Boris was pushing that it had to be as ambitious as possible. So a lot of the focus, uh, Brian and Alex, seems to be on the submarines, but actually there seems to be a bit more about it than that that we haven't been told yet. Well, I just find uh, the whole thing incredible, Mike. If you look into the background of it, of course, the, the French deal to provide those conventional submarines was in a complete mess. There were Australian uh, members of parliament who were speaking out and saying that this was a disgraceful waste of money. They'd engaged the French in the contract. They'd uh, paid millions into the development programme and here they were with no submarines at all, nothing coming through the pipeline, no prospect of it. So that was the background in, in, in Australia. But also they'd taken the defence decision that they were going to go for conventional submarines. And there's a huge difference between, we'll call them diesel electric submarines and nuclear submarines. So for them to suddenly say, no, no, what we actually need is nuclear submarines, that cannot be a decision that was made in the matter of a few days. That, that had got to be the result of a calculated defence planning um, 
um, regime and that, in my opinion, would have taken them at least a year, if not longer. Um, Alex, uh, the French, of course, unlike the Australians, already have nuclear capability and they've got nuclear weapons and so on. But uh, do you think, that, sort of hijacking of this with this question, but do you think that uh, the decision to not involve the French in this was about the Five Eyes or was it more to do with the fact that France and China have pretty tight ties with respect to nuclear uh, matters at the moment? It's undoubtedly the latter, Mike. Uh, for one thing, it's nuclear-powered technology, as Scott Morrison, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia, or that guy down under to President Biden, uh, Scott Morrison's been very keen to stress it's not submarines that fire nuclear weapons, it is nuclear technology to power the boats. So um, in that regard, as you say, France and China have a, a very close relationship now in civil nuclear technology, which is the base of the a nuclear tree in any country, of course, for any military applications. For another, Five Eyes, although it, the last decade it has been bandied about in, in the press as a term, uh, comes from my old uh, stomping grounds, signal intelligence. The UK-USA or UQSA Five Eyes agreement is for the sharing of signals intelligence only. There is a completely different classification regime with a presumption of not sharing with, uh, with what are called second parties, uh, let alone third parties, uh, in the nuclear world. We have never made a point of sharing our nuclear technology with the Americans de facto. The Australians are not in that club, never have been. Uh, so uh, the only sense in which Five Eyes is used here uh, is this uh, way? Uh, is, is this more recent sense in which the G7 and NATO have started talking about values alignment and trusted partners? It's much more towards the cultural end of the uh, spectrum. You just hinted that the Times is used for, well, not so much MI6 even, but the Cabinet Office now for favoured leaks and the fluff and the cultural bias or the cultural uh, concentration in what was just uh, sold there. Here's how the intrigue happened. Not, nothing about the military nitty gritty suggests to me, again, that it is much more mood music. We can't trust the French. Now, over the weekend, the French press has really continued the, to up the ante and covered the fact that the Australians, Americans and British are now saying, calm down, froggies, uh, we, we got one over on you, just, just live with it, whereas the French are not letting matters lie. They have recalled their ambassadors for consultations from Washington and Canberra. Now, there again, there's one thing that within the Anglo-Saxon countries you'd never do, we have high commissioners within the Commonwealth. France has recalled its ambassadors. And if you look at the ministers who've been taking to the airwaves, you and Patrick on Friday covered that Jacques Le Drian, notably the foreign minister, not the defence minister in France, was the first to say they'd been stabbed in the back. But over the weekend, completely different portfolio holders, such as the housing minister in France, who's not directly related at all to this portfolio, have been saying this raises questions about whether we can trust the Anglo-Saxons as allies at all. It's a kind of uh, revisiting of the pre-First World War situation, ultimately, because uh, then it seems that the French managed to get Britain involved in the planning for the First World War through speaking secretly to Earl Grey. Now Britain seems to have been the linchpin this time to, to have swung itself back. And there's one more point for uh, the sake of brevity I think we must make, though, and that is that for a couple of years, uh, those plugged into the uh, what used to be the Admiralty have been suggesting that France and Britain not only merged their fissile material stockpiling and training with Rolduc, uh, sorry, Valduc and Aldermaston becoming two ends of the same inseparable operation, interdependability in whatever they call it, interdependence, interoperability. There's a suggestion that the 2030 time, time frame new carrier fleet 
between Britain and France, with the Charles de Gaulle intended to be more or less a joint asset and the, and the uh, Queen Elizabeth II also. That was suggested in some quarters to be the basis of a subsurface component, which would have been the new uh, Anglo-French nuclear deterrent, which would have been the EU or European NATO's nuclear deterrent, with the Germans ultimately taking uh, an equal share in it. If you read the French and German press, that seems to be what the myth uh, attitude is all about that France and ultimately Germany and Brussels have missed out on the next generation nuclear strike fleet, uh, the carrier force in the in the high seas um, and the ability perhaps to have nuclear armed subs in future. Uh, uh, the other bit, sorry, uh, the other bit I think we, we need to bring in is the fact that um, it appears that uh, the plan is for the Australians to actually take existing hulls. Is there some form of leasehold arrangement? Well, that right? seemed to be what was being discussed, that they would initially rent this capability until they had submarines of their own. But, but Alex, uh, no matter how you look at it, this is going to involve US military personnel on Australian soil. So uh, the US, as Patrick mentioned on Friday, suddenly gets bases in Australia effectively. Yes, since the 1970s, the US Marine Corps have been uh, certainly up in their Northern Territory. Uh, Darwin has been one of their major uh, bases. And thanks to viewers in Queensland, we know that the whole of the eastern shore of Australia uh, around Rockhampton um, now regularly plays host to the same uh, exercises. American troops have never been wildly popular in Australia. It's not quite like Europe or Japan, where there's a, a string of ill-disciplined incidents. But ultimately, it is going to be um, U.S. Marines, just at a time when, as we're about to cover, the U.S. Marines have rethought themselves into a, a new, looser concept, U.S. Marines are going to be their front line because just north of Australian territorial waters, when you get into East Timor and Indonesia, you're very close to the Spratly Islands in, in uh, nautical terms and the Nine Dash Line, which is uh, China's uh, disputed uh, of, uh, claim for territorial waters. So that's where the um, action is all going to be. Will the Chinese Navy be contained within that Nine Dash Line or not? At the top end is Taiwan. At the bottom, the disputed Spratlys, which the Philippines, Vietnam and Malaysia also claim part of. And Australia is prime real estate there, but Australia doesn't have the Marines, although it, its fighting men are extremely good. Uh, it does not have the depth, uh, nor does Canada, to contribute to this effort. OK, thank you. So we're going to watch with interest. Well, we had to just add this uh, BBC image for the sheer ridiculous value. Um, so here's the headline. Of course, Pact delivers France some uh, hard truths. And what caught my eye, of course, was the single man with the face mask. So uh, is he the Covid carrier? And if so, why have they put the other three at risk, including, including Macron? I mean, yeah, why is this happening? Yeah, we simply don't know. Very good question. Uh, but in the meantime, then, the UK has uh, announced that it is investing £170 million with uh, British Aerospace, or BAE Systems rather, and uh, Rolls-Royce for the next generation of submarines for the UK. Uh, it's going to maintain 250 jobs in Barrow and 100 jobs in, Dar uh, in Derby, but uh, this is uh, all about a design concept uh, which is going to inform future decisions. So £170 million uh, doesn't even get a, a, a blueprint, as it, as it were. No, uh, it's an incredible amount of money. And clearly something is happening, sorry to use the pun, something's happening under the surface here because uh, we've got the deal with Australia, we've got this happening, but the, the whole drive for years has been the dismantling of UK's military. Uh, why is it that all of a sudden we're going mad on submarine capability 
Um, what, are, what are they trying to do? Is this building the battle group as, as um, Alex has just intimated? We don't know. Of course, the public's not being told. This is just a, a fantasy unraveling in front of our eyes. Well, the question is then, Alex, where does it leave the EU? And uh, well, here is uh, the European External Action Service, the effectively the EU uh, Foreign Office, uh, tweeting this out today as the world's leading defenders of multilateralism, the EU and the UN hold a partnership that delivers uh, the UN General so hashtag UNGA, that's the UN General Assembly, is the opportunity to look at the future and lead the way to build back better together. Because of course, this is uh, maintaining all the uh, Great Reset language. So together they respond to global crises and so on. The EU and the UN work, working together in more than 170 countries and so on. Uh, well, why is this uh, important? Uh, because if we go back to the uh, European Commission's uh, description of European Defence Union, and Alex was talking about interoperability, interdependence is the key here. And, and you know, Brian's talking about the fact that the UK military has been decimated by the UK government over the last 40, 50 years. It's because no member, no individual uh, nation is capable of providing an independent deterrent or an independent defense anymore uh, because we're interdependent with everybody else. But if we look at the right-hand side, and if you remember the European Commission said that European Defense Union could only work if all pillars were in place. But the right-hand pillar there is core partnerships with, between NATO and the United Nations. So today, uh, possibly in response to this uh, AUKUS partnership, the uh, EU is very much pushing their, their partnership with the United Nations. Um, so, uh, Alex, I don't know if you've got any, any thoughts on that or where, you know, how much of that is just uh, PR and rhetoric. But uh, this, the, the Defence Union has, they, they're attempting to put a bit more momentum into it as a result of what's happened over the last few days. I think perhaps the most useful angle for our viewers, especially British ones to uh, view this, is that this is the British deep state attempting to pre pretend that it uh, never left the EU for defence purposes. Uh, regular viewers will know that uh, we were one of the very few, if not the only news source to report on that being an actual phrase used by an EU intelligence official. You have not left for defence purposes, he said in the briefing and then added, uh, this is probably secret in Britain. Um, because right the way through, certainly through my intelligence career, um, a lot of the suave officers would say, we Brits hold a Trump card. We, we play Greece to America's Rome in the post-war post -war world, but we also are the only keystone country that is in all the international fora. Uh, back then it would have been the G8, the UN, NATO and the EU. Britain is no longer in the EU, but having been the swing state by throwing its weight now behind AUKUS rather than uh, Anglo-French military domination uh, of the European North Atlantic space, Britain is becoming central again. Uh, whether you're talking G7, as it now is, with Russia being kicked out or saying they don't want to play anymore, NATO, UN, Britain is still in all those. It's just not in the EU. The EU, of course, is not in the, the South China Sea area either. But uh, if that's where the action is going to be, then Britain is going to want to be there. As early as 1960, if my memory serves, uh, Britain already signed a five powers agreement with the Australian and New Zealand navies and the Singaporeans as well uh, to guarantee the security of uh, uh, ships passing through those important straits around the Straits of Malacca. Uh, so there's always been a British strategic interest there. It's almost as if Britain didn't lose its empire and didn't leave the EU for these purposes. Yeah, okay. Alex, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, move on to other military matters and defence news here reporting. Uh, the UK's future forced to lean heavily on robotics, AI and hybrid power. 
Jen Judson is Defense News, which is a Washington paper um, uh, land forces correspondent. This is the first of two articles by her we're featuring. There's been a slew of coverage, largely by this US-based uh, outlet, Defense News, of the DSEI, the Biennial um, uh, Defense Equipment uh, Expo at Excel, um, it, previously the Millennium Dome in East London. And here, I'm, in the following slides, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not quoting by name the colonels, generals and admirals involved, because they're all uh, just like the rest of government these days. They're just a another spokesman, I'm afraid, even though they're high-ranking officers. So um, the spokesman in this case, talking about the robotization of Britain's future force, bear in mind, of course, the previous segment as we go through this, what's Britain intending to do with possibly uh, robotized subs and the like. We, we hear that uh, the British Army, for the land-based uh, component, has two key tenets, uh, rather unfortunately misheard uh, by Jen Judson as tenants, meaning something totally different. But what are the two, the army's key two, two key premises in its robotization? Uh, well, neither of them is a frank admission that the, that the recruits aren't there. But the first of them is that army expects our combat power to be increasingly dispersed. This is code for Russia and China and Iran even have got too much power uh, to be able to for us to put a, a whole uh, battle group. Or, or land equivalent, a whole army in the field together, they need to be dispersed in order to survive. The US Marine Corps has very much that idea, General Berger now. And the second tenet is that the army expects, here comes the politicization again, and the, uh, the deliberate uh, uh, cabbaging of Britain's uh, previous uh, abilities, the, the army expects that vehicles will increasingly be electrified in the land fleet. So uh, never mind performance, they must be electrified. Um, moving on to more about automation, the British Chief of Military Intelligence has, quote, ambitious plans for automation. And uh, this is another author, Vivienne Machi. And um, the um, chief in question, Hockenhull, says, as real artificial intelligence matures, I know it will play a vital role in our future. Not may it or should it, but it will. But it will also bring with it a host of challenges around exploitability, fragility and ethics. Uh, that, of course, is code for can the Russians hack it? Can our own dark actors hack it and blame it on the Russians? And is it right for an AI system to blow people up based on its own guesses of where the enemy are? Um, so the defense intelligence focus is on exploiting mature technologies. Of course, it's only a decade or slightly more since Britain's previously great defence intelligence service was told it had to shed as many men uh, as was necessary for one of the main uh, buildings that the MOD had down Whitehall to be flogged off. I think it's a hotel these days, the old war office building. That was the, um, under Jeff Hoon's tenure, if I, if I remember correctly, that was the criterion for chopping the DIS, which together with the Americans and Russians was definitely the world's best intelligence service back then. Lose as many men as will not fit in the building. Uh, so that's the result. Uh, computers will be guessing for us. Uh, the British Army also has a land industrial base strategy uh, out due, due out this year. So this uh, is the terrestrial equivalent of the Navy machinations that we've just been covering in the previous segment. And here we have a Colonel Lambert saying that no supply chains really are sovereign these days. So uh, never mind what you were hearing about Barrow, where our bent boats used to be built, or the land equivalent. No, there's the, it's all international stuff. And the British Army doesn't have great volume. Hint, there's not much of an army left. So we're in the user club of one. But let's do it internationally, come together with alliances, government and industry. Australia, of course, is quite flush with cash as an economy. Um, and it may well be that Britain is wanting to rope Australia in preparatory to a, a, a similar land agreement so that Australia will provide the financial bulk that's needed just to buy the next generation of land systems for the armies. Uh, back to matters nautical and your uh, old uh, domain Brian, because the Royal Navy is also highlighting at the DSEI event what a green ship design could look like. Uh, Vivian Machi again reports this. And hint, 
there are no green ships. It's existing hulls with some frills on them. So the Navy, we're told, wants modular ships that are adaptable to a wider range of roles rather than create a whole plethora of various vessels, Darkin, I think he's a rear admiral, says. To save time and taxpayer funds, aha, that's the key, the service will take advantage of commercial off-the-shelf products rather than design all the new elements itself. So the Navy, we, we are told, wants to be a fast follower and to exploit the technologies and advancements made within the commercial sector. Brian, in your day, did you buy stuff secondhand from commercial suppliers or did the Navy actually have its own producers? Well, it worked. The, the Navy was working with producers on uh, weapons systems. It a bit of a halfway house because you, you saw, um, particularly on the sonar side, that those were developed with in-house capability and then brought onto the ship. Some of the other systems, uh, if you talk about Harpoon, for instance, obviously that was a bought-in system. Uh, but uh, in the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War period, you were still very much uh, where the military were developing their own systems and um, then the commercial outfits was their products were skewed along the lines of what the what the military wanted if you go to the stage where you can only go shopping then you can only do what the commercial outfits um, decide upon so you you're limited by what they present but the idea of a ship that could be changed into a number of different roles depending what's on the shelf personally i think this is fantasy because of course when the chips are down, you want to be able to move the ship instantly. You don't want it to be going into port to take on some new system outfit because that's what you perceive the latest threat to be. So I, I think this is a another halfway measure. And this has actually its corollary in the land uh, area because one of the articles we just had on screen a moment ago made the point that the uh, army with its new modular robotic concept uh, is deliberately being vague. In fact, that word is that phrase is used in one of those articles if people go and look them up, deliberately vague or very similar wording, uh, because the army wants to hang back and see what is, is going on in the, in the threat theatre and then design some uh, equipment to try to protect its elements in the field once the war has already started and the enemy rolls out a new weapon system. Um, it all sounds very sexy and fashionable, but how it will work in practice uh, is anyone's guess. But of course, these may be third party allies being made to do the auxiliary fighting for us Roman Empire style in its decay, decaying centuries. Um, On to the US Air Force. Task and Purpose reports that the US Air Force has yet another use for its old beast, the C-130. Um, it wants to turn it into a flying boat of the kind often seen in the Second World War, the Flying Fortress and so on. The uh, C-130 has had many roles, as the task and purpose tells us, but now they're going to uh, fit uh, floaters, possibly with wheels below it as well, so that it can still have an, a terrestrial landing carriage. And the purpose, as you read through this, is that it's, again, too dangerous, that they're, they're semi-admitting too dangerous to have bases in the northern um, uh, Australian area or the Western Pacific, they might just get tactical nuked by China. So instead, they will be uh, dotting the Western Pacific and the South China Sea with these uh, flying boats, which will spew out from their guts all the little men and landing craft that might be needed for a decentralized US Marine Corps, uh, which is General Berger's big idea to take things from there. Before we go on to the US uh, in particular, one more piece from Britain, I think it's of uh, note in all of this automation and, inter and internationalization. Uh, Israeli and British firms, we're told, are to deliver an unmanned vehicle 
for an experimental British programme. Bear in mind, of course, what you've been covering recently about the back problems and hearing problems caused to many troops in the outrageously over-budgeted <clears throat> and um, uh, behind schedule um, designed for a British uh, armoured car, next generation. Now Israel steps into the picture, so if you tap that again, we'll see a couple of extracts. So get used to defence news reporting things from Jerusalem. That that byline is quite new in defence, but I think a lot more of uh, the, the, the pieces in the international defence press will start with Jerusalem from now on, because uh, Israel's where it's at for the design now. So Israel Aerospace Industries and the British firm Marlborough Communications Limited will deliver four remote platoon vehicles to the Defence Ministry, a British Defence Ministry, that is, as part of an experimental programme for unmanned systems. So the uh, MOD has a future capability group and it wants to identify it doesn't know what they are yet, but identify military requirements in future for UGVs, unmanned ground vehicles by trials. And we know, we're told further down the piece that Israel's military already has one, the Jaguar, a semi-autonomous robotic system. Uh, of course, that takes pot shots at Palestinians, but in a slightly different legal framework than, than Britain has. And there's also a bottom line there, which is a very interested Brian, perhaps. We are told that uh, in uh, Britain, Israeli Aerospace Industries is already partnering with Thales, a French conglomerate uh, with a British presence, on the Sea Serpent anti-ship missile. Without getting too deep in the weeds, I think this is the um, replacement that we got for the Sea Skua, but you might want to correct me on that at the end of the segment, Brian, because I know that there's another story of uh, Britain failing to act on time to have a, a native a replacement for its system there. Uh, finally, for me in this uh, section, oh yes, two more actually, uh, Defense One in the United States <clears throat> reports that now that General Berger, the new very globalist-minded commander of the uh, uh, com Commandant General of the US Marine Corps, has said that they want to land their Marines in a dispersed way around the Pacific so they don't all get killed at once, uh, we see, if you put that on screen, uh, that uh, the, um, it hasn't gone on screen yet, Mike. Sorry, yes. Yeah, there we are. Yep. Yes, if we go back one, um, that the US Marine Corps are looking for a few older people. So they um, traditionally have been the youngest uh, of the US armed forces on average. And it's because of the Corps' shift to a lighter distributed force. This requires actually something that the Germans and Russians have had for a long time previously, but not the British and Americans, individual skills and judgment down to a very low level of Marine forces. Uh, and so we're told that, uh, well, this is quoting General Berger, the, the head of the US Marine Corps. This is quite astonishing. He, he's thinking out loud as to why he might, might want to recruit people who've already had a few years in the real world before joining up. And he says, have we trained that individual, that's the, the potential recruit properly, to understand the ramifications of do I pull the trigger, do I not pull the trigger? Do I, that's General Berger, uh, no, he's, he's putting words in the mouth of the recruit again, do I know what I need to know to execute, here's the fancy phrase, mission type orders, which is the Russian and German style, uh, this is what needs to be done, now work out yourself how to do it. Do I know how to carry out the nation's bidding based on what I have seen and what I think is going to happen? Um, Brian, this is a, a hint, isn't it, that as things currently stand, perhaps not this, not a historical truth about the US Marine Corps, but for the last few years, they have been putting rifles uh, in the hands of very young men and now women who do not actually have the maturity and the real world experience that their peers at a, the same age perhaps previously had to know when to pull the trigger and when not. And now they're conceding defeat and saying that people later in their 20s might actually have a bit more nous in that regard. Well, I'd say that's that's true, but also I think what you're actually saying is that you don't expect people to be fighting a black and white war with an identifiable enemy where if the enemy appears, you're going to pull the trigger. Uh, this is more about a policing role in my mind where you're going to have people in a 
area of operations and they are half troops and half police. So this is this is this confused theatre operation. Um, obviously, Afghanistan, a prime example of it, where um, a lot of the young troops had great difficulty with rules of engagement and who the enemy was and when they were allowed to open fire. And, and there's been many pieces, of course, where particularly American troops have scorned the rules of engagement because they said effectively it stopped them being able to fight. So more confused more confusion, I think, in defence planning. They don't know what they're doing, whether they're producing a military force or they're in some form of international peacekeeping role. That's the problem, I think. And finally, for this segment, this confusion and this mixing of narratives extends all the way to the US Great Lakes, uh, where we're told confidently by the Beltway Defence Press, in this case, the um, uh, senior aerospace and defence contributor to Forbes, Craig Hooper, that Congress has made a mistake. Congress has authorised an icebreaker for Lake Superior, Lake Huron and the other Great Lakes there that we're told in the greater confidence of Mr Hooper, the US Coast Guard doesn't need. Well, of course, Congress thought differently, uh, but we're told in the piece that this is all because of uh, some overpowerful lobby of uh, uh, senators and congressmen who represent those Great Lakes states around Detroit and uh, Chicago. Uh, but there's already one, the Mackinac, and the second icebreaker, which has now been uh, budgeted to go into the US Coast Guard for the Great Lakes. We're told it's an odd choice for inclusion in the defence budget. The Coast Guard needs icebreakers, uh, Mr Hooper admits, but the current priorities are focused upon helping maintain, aha, rules-based order. It's, it's double hyphenated. It's become such an expression now in the increasingly lawless deep seas. Uh, anyone spot the mismatch here? U.S. Coast Guard operating in the deep seas abroad. They have started doing this in recent years, basically become a second U.S. Navy. And uh, so we're getting a hint again. Never mind uh, the forecast global cooling, uh, which, which people should be well aware of now. Follow uh, ADAPT 2030 and Ice Age Pharma, among others, to find out more. Um, but no, we're going to deny that. What's really important is that we should be uh, forcing our uh, way in trade uh, against the uh, interests of the Asian powers uh, out there where the action is in East Asia. OK, Alex, thank you for that. Now, if you like what uh, the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, and also uh, do share our material uh, including this program that you find on the various platforms. Uh, and just a very brief reminder that uh, we've put the uh, membership vouchers for Christmas gifts uh, back on the, the site. I know it's only September, but uh, it seems like the supermarkets are doing that. So why should we join the club, Brian? Well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not is the answer. Okay. Uh, BBC this morning, rescue loans for gas firms urged over energy price crisis. Now, we talked about this twice last week and uh, most recently on Friday, uh, but we were focusing on electricity prices. Uh, the main news, uh, various media today talking about gas prices. Uh, and actually, the government has uh, uh, published a UK gas supply explainer. And if you read this uh, BBC News article, you will find that it's pretty much word for word what the government published in its gas uh, supply explainer. Um, so what are they saying? They're saying that uh, it sets out the background to the issue of wholesale gas prices and the action the government is taking to protect the UK's energy supply industry and customers. They're saying that the prices that are currently visible reflect the high value being placed on gas at the present time. 
Uh, and the reason for that is because as the world comes out of COVID-19 lockdowns and economies reopen, we're seeing an uptick in global gas demand this year, combined with a cold winter, uh, which has an impact on gas demand, as gas is often used for heating homes, they say. In particular, high demand in Asia for liquefied natural gas. Natural gas transported globally by ship means less LNG than expected has reached Europe. Uh, some essential maintenance uh, projects rescheduled from 2020 due to coronavirus also contributed. Um, so, you know, that is what the government is saying is causing wholesale uh, gas prices to rise. Uh, we were making the point that this uh, was having an effect on wholesale electricity prices. And uh, some people may well ask why. And of course, uh, part of the reason is the, that Britain in particular is, is uh, uh, generating, well, what is that? 49% today, 49% uh, of our electricity generating capacity is coming from uh, gas uh, fired uh, power stations. Um, and uh, very little is coming from wind. Um, but uh, we don't need to worry because the government is on this and they've got a, well, they call it an annual exercise taking place next week. It's called Exercise Celsius. Uh, this is from the National Grid and the Network Emergency Coordinator. Uh, and Exercise Celsius is the gas industry's annual network gas supply emergency network emergency coordinator assurance exercise. I hope that all makes sense. Uh, so Exercise Celsius will focus on uh, network emergency coordinator communications with all industry participants at stages one to three of an emergency and ensure that industry participants are aware of their obligations to comply with NEC instructions. And look, the bottom line here is, though, uh, that the UK is not, just as with food, the UK is not energy independent. We're not food independent. We're not energy independent. Uh, we import a huge amount of energy from France in particular. Uh, which might be why it's not a good idea to be annoying the French at the moment. But anyway, that's <laughs> yeah. another uh, topic. Um, and uh, so we don't have the capability and there's not much sign uh, of new generating capacity being brought online quickly enough, uh, not, not uh, at least other than wind turbines, which are intermittent, uh, as we see today, because there isn't much wind and uh, they're not producing much electricity. Uh, but uh, look, this is the uh, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which was set up by uh, Lord Lawson a number of years ago, and they've uh, uh, issued uh, some comments, an open letter to the government on this topic. Uh, now, interestingly, the, the newest member of uh, the uh, Global Warming Policy Foundation, Steve Baker MP, he's uh, joined because he's concerned about the cost of net zero policies. Um, so uh, they have... Uh, they were giving evidence last week to the House of Lords inquiry on the costs of net zero, net zero, and they said that the that the inquiry was taking evidence on the cost and potential impacts of a renewable energy system, how policymakers should uh, consider the interests of future generations and the role of carbon pricing, um, and so they had already submitted written evidence, but they were giving some verbal evidence last week as well, and that they've repeatedly drawn attention to the growing evidence cast doubt on the official estimates of costs and feasibility of renewable energy to reduce CO2 emissions uh, and to meet the targets implied in the Climate Change Act 2008 uh, and, uh, and so on. But they're also extremely concerned about the costs uh, involved, including the rising costs of energy as a result. Um, so they are, uh, they've written this or produced this press release today and they're saying suspend climate policies and cancel COP6 to save Britain from looming energy disaster. Uh, they're saying that they've consistently warned that Britain's unilateral climate policies under both Labour and Conservative administrations 
We're creating an insecure and expensive energy sector that will ultimately fail due to consumer costs and collapsing security of supply. And so they're calling on the government to suspend all green levies on energy bills, funding subsidies temporarily, so suspend funding subsidies temporarily out of taxation, uh, but uh, acting firmly to cancel these subsidies in the near term and cancel constraint payments and compel wind and solar generators to pay for their own balancing costs, thus incentivizing them to self-dispatch only when economic, uh, remove all fiscal and other disincentives for oil and gas exploration, including shale gas, to increase domestic production levels. Some may disagree with that particular item uh, and suspend carbon taxation on coal and gas generation in order to provide consumer relief and ensure security of supply. But, you know, uh, aside from their call, uh, their Alex for fracking, um, not too many of the mainstream press, in fact, can't think of any of the mainstream press are in any way blaming uh, Green New Deal or COP26 type policies uh, for this uh, pretty severe rise in energy prices. And uh, just to give an impression of how this is going to affect people, um, I received two letters from British Gas in the last week or so, one about my gas supply, one about my electricity supply. And I think my gas supply on the costs on the 1st of October are going to go up by around 30 percent and the electricity by around 20 percent on the 1st of October with more price rises expected next April. The government saying, oh, don't worry, we've got energy caps in place for, for retail prices, um, but those energy caps are being raised. Um, so this is going to have a direct impact on very, very many people and is particularly going to hurt the poorest. So, uh, you know, and it's all Green New Deal policies at the back of it. As usual, Mike, if you look at the Dutch approach and the Dutch press, you'll find what the Brits aren't saying, because, of course, the British and Dutch share the same central planning ultimately. But the Dutch approach is uh, our people will freak out if we don't tell them what's going on. And the British approach is let the poor sods find out later when it's all done and dusted what the price is. Uh, is going to be. So the Dutch government announced it about three years ago now that they were going to ban gas installation uh, of, of, of installation of Hobson's gas-fired boilers in new build accommodation. Uh, Britain will not do that. It will just uh, wait until uh, you know people can no longer afford gas and then say, well, terribly sorry, but we still have a free market. Uh, what are the Dutch doing instead? Well, in this city centre where I'm speaking from, it's one of the first. They've been uh, laying down a great disruption as well. These uh, heat networks that you have started talking about in the last couple of weeks too, Mike. So industry produces heat. There's a heat exchange and it's pumped around town. It's very dangerous, actually. Uh, super pressurised, super heated uh, steam going round the ring main in the town and uh, in future Soviet style, that will be your chance to get heating. Of course, in the British version, you'll nominally be free to buy gas. You'll still have gas hobs in new build, probably. You just won't be able to afford a, a single uh, hour of uh, energy on it. Um, again, the, the irony is, is, is quite uh, interesting and reflected in the name exercise Celsius, because, of course, it's a unit of thermal energy or a unit of temperature measurement, I beg your pardon, um, and a surname. But as a Latin word, Celsius means rather higher. And I think that that or a lot higher. And I think that's a, a hint that the uh, powers that be know that that's what our gas bills are going to be air long. That's a, a very interesting uh, point. Uh, and of course, we won't be burning wood because we can see the rules coming into play to stop you at least burning wet, wet wood. Uh, but uh, we'll do more on that in due course. Let's switch to health and the headline. Well, the headline is a momentous decision because apparently the government has decided it's going to put folic acid in uh, white and brown 
bred in order to protect babies. Um, we thought, let's compare this really with what's happening with uh, babies as a result of vaccinations. So the mail here says that experts who've long campaigned for the move to put folic acid in bread claim it will cut the number of cases by 200 a year, roughly 20% of the average annual UK total. Um, Boris Johnson said the decision would give extra peace of mind to parents and families, as well as helping boost the health of adults across the country. Um, so we've immediately put that uh, in juxtaposition with the uh, MHRA yellow card, the vaccine adverse effects. And we need to ask the question, well, uh, if we can deal with folic acid in bread, uh, why are we not paying attention to the damage being done by vaccines? Uh, so let's get into that a little bit more. We've gone to the UK columns front end uh, where you can search the MHRA yellow card database. And uh, fairly quickly before today's, <coughs> excuse me, today's news, we had a look at um, abortions. And we've got a total reaction of five at the top of the screen there, total fatalities one. Uh, we've got another uh, section, which is spontaneous abortions and threatened abortions, uh, much larger figures, total reactions, 537 uh, with 12 fatalities. And then we go on to other problems, amniotic fluid and cavity disorders of pregnancies. There's a reaction there, fetal com co uh, complications. We've got another reaction. And uh, if we follow this through, we can see that the trail of hurt goes on, but apparently compared to bread, this is just of no significance. The government doesn't want to talk about this at all. Is hemorrhage complications of pregnancy. We've got a total reactions of eight at the top of the screen, pre-eclampsia. We've got uh, three total there, and we've got 15 labor onset and length abnormalities. So if it's to do with the pharmaceutical industry, of course, the damage can continue. The government doesn't want to investigate the cause of the damage, um, but if it's uh, if it's damage as a result of a what's essentially a bit of vitamin B nine deficiency, uh, then we can put folic acid in bread. Um, somebody has suggested to me today that this is just a diversionary uh, piece by the government to try and take some of the heat off vaccine damage. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it seems quite remarkable that at this very turbulent time with the things that we've discussed in the military and energy, we can suddenly do this in bread. Um, Alex, I'm watching your face closely. I don't know whether you've got any comments on this one, but I, I think the timing is extraordinary of this, quote, momentous government announcement. What exactly is momentous about it? Are we going to see a repeat of the fluoride wars of previous decades? You know, uh, on the one hand, it's good for your health, and on the other, uh, our civil liberties not to have it. And um, I'm a bit lost for words, really. And, and another uh, avenue that's being uh, pushed at the moment, of course, with regard to abortions, if you look at the European Centre for Law and Justice, eclj.org, they report that some Polish women have been got together to complain that they feel uh, mentally disadvantaged by the uh, Polish ban on cosmetic abortions. And this, of course, is a big cause célèbre, the Polish women and their, their uh, limited reproductive rights and limited self-autonomy, as it's called, as if the baby was not a person. 
Um, and this is being hyped up as a few outliers like the ECLJ will mention in their campaigning, while at the same time, uh, the women of the Western world are being told to get jabbed and never mind if it causes you a miscarriage. Yeah. Okay, well, staying on health and staying with the mail, um, this is a whole series of articles which suddenly seem to uh, be coming to the fore. And it's all about the fact, of course, that people cannot see their GPs. Uh, but the mail appears to be picking up on the fact that this is causing huge problems. So we've got growing toll of cancers and devastating illnesses missed by remote doctors fuels concerns over healthcare appointments. And uh, we've got a lot of graphics, a lot of um, subsidiary articles in support of this topic. Uh, but uh, they also produce this graphic. Uh, quality is not, not too good, but we'll see what we can do to help show what's actually being said here. So the first part of this is by numbers. So it says that 80.7 million doctors on course for offering 80.7 million fewer face-to-face -face appointments. Uh, it says 80% is the proportion of face-to-face -face appointments in 2019. So we're seeing a massive drop. 59.2%, um, the proportion of face-to-face -face appointments fell last year because of the pandemic. Uh, so it's all being blamed on the pandemic, but people simply saying the doors of their GP surgeries are shut and they've no idea why this is still continuing. And the statistics go on. It says uh, towards the bottom, 13, the number of clinical commissioning groups still offering less than half of their appointments face-to-face. -face. And two, only two clinical commission groups are offering more than 70% appointments face-to-face. -face. But of course, the doctor uh, used for the image is grinning from ear to ear because um, they're not seeing the patients, but they're still absolutely being uh, given their full pay plus bonuses if they come into the vaccination program. So uh, this is pretty in-your-face collapse of the health system. Here's the worst five clinical commissioning groups, and we've got South Sefton, Salford, South East London, Southport, Formby, and Cheshire. And uh, what's the lowest of those? 44.9%. 40, 40, so roughly half um, of the previous provision, but all the money still being paid to these GPs and their very profitable business-based surgeries. If we go to the best five, um, well, we're up into the uh, the lowest is 69.2%, but up to 72.6% of uh, uh, we'll call it of uh, people who are still able to see the uh, GP. So um, a drop of roughly 30%. Uh, but we're still going to keep that label in there that the GPs are being paid. And then this is the overall uh, graph that they're putting forward uh, to show how face-to-face -face appointments have uh, fallen. Well, the appointments have fallen, so um, problems, medical problems not being diagnosed. Now we've got the problem that the hospitals can't cope with the people who are coming through the system. And the NHS, we know, has outsourced a lot of the screening tests that it should be doing. So what we're actually watching, Mike, is breakdown of the system. Yes, and that's feeding through to the death statistics because we're seeing excess mortality creeping back in. Uh, but uh, it's not COVID-related, according to the government statistics. So even the deaths that are being uh, attributed to COVID, uh, only 
uh, comprise a very small proportion of the excess mortality that we're seeing at this point in time. Yep. And uh, just to put the contrast in, here's the Guardian keeping up the hype on coronavirus. And of course, they've got the immediate plug that we're vaccinating the children. UK starts vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds. China reports 49 new cases. And in comes a whole glut of statistics to help ramp up the fear factor or at least keep the fear factor in the UK going. Um, so what is going on with uh, with coronavirus policy in this country? Well, let's have a look at this. And thank you to the viewer who sent this through to me. This is a job advertisement on Indeed. Uh, let's just uh, zoom in a little bit on this. This is for a track and trace driver for Project Echo. Now, I hadn't heard of Project Echo, so we'll have a look at that in one second. But this is for professional security personnel with their own transport. Uh, they're getting paid £90 a day uh, with proven experience in the security industry. So they've got to be uh, security uh, personnel and they're going to be driving around and making sure people are uh, conforming to the test and trace requirements for international travel. But this is very strange, as we'll remind you of in a second. Um, so let's uh, have a look at what Project ECHO is. Uh, and it's run by this uh, person here, Steve Watson, who's De Deputy Director, Emergency Service Mobile Communications Program at the Home Office. Uh, and he's been doing that job since 2014. And previous to that, he was working for the Metropolitan Police. Uh, but he produced this uh, in April, I think it was, uh, this um, series of graphics uh, called Project ECHO. And it's, uh, ECHO stands for Enhanced Compliance for Health Outcomes. So that's a nice acronym there. Uh, so this is all about international travel, quarantining at home. And now this was produced in April. So it, it was the rules that applied at that point. Uh, this is all about the journey of a traveler from an amber list country. Um, and the data is received from DHSC and processed sorry, by the run team. And so it goes on. Uh, and Mighty are one of the uh, companies that are involved in this. Uh, they're conducting visits using an app and set workflow. Um, and uh, so they have, here's a summary of the service and the kind of uh, quantities in, and around the country that they're getting involved in. But what confused me about this was that we just reported last week that the government had announced that the travel restrictions were being changed, that the traffic light system was being dropped. There are no amber list countries anymore. Amber list countries become go countries. And so they become like green uh, list countries. Uh, and there's no requirement for double jab to be PCR tested. Uh, Pre-departure tests are scrapped. Unvaccinated will be required to quarantine on return uh, and hotel quarantine stays for no-go countries. But his definition of ECHO was that it involved amber lists. So not quite sure how ECHO uh, changes. Uh, but that uh, job advertisement was for a contract which could last up to three years. Um, so clearly, this is not going away anytime soon, despite the relative relaxation of travel restrictions. And the confusion goes on. Uh, of course it does. Uh, but in the meantime, Brian, you were talking a second ago about uh, vaccinations for 12 to 15 year olds. Uh, a lot of people sent this to us, so I thought we'd just uh, cover it. Uh, this is the consent form, uh, coronavirus vaccine consent form for children and young people. Uh, it's come from the UK Health Security Agency and the National Health Service. There's a bit of fusion going on there. Um, and uh, well, let's just zoom in on a couple of the aspects of this. Uh, it says one way you can help Sorry, one way to help you stay safe is to get a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, the coronavirus vaccine should stop you getting very poorly if you do catch coronavirus. So the language that's used in this 
And the graphics that are used to this are targeted towards younger people, in this case, teenagers. But uh, as we might see in a second, maybe it won't stop there. Um, it would take two weeks for the vaccine to start working. Uh, so they don't say anything about what happens in those two weeks and the effect on your immune system during those two weeks, but it will take two weeks for the vaccine to start working. After your vaccine, your arm might be a bit sore for a short time. You might also feel tired or have a headache. This is called having side effects. You can ask your parent or carer to give you some painkillers like paracetamol for this. doesn't talk about the heart uh, implications for younger people uh, in this case that have been seen. And that's the limit of what it says about um, uh, adverse reactions. Uh, it says you don't have to keep following the government's rules if you've been vaccinated, but they will help you to stay safe. So they're talking about hands, face, space here. Uh, this includes social distancing, wearing a face covering and washing your hands carefully and often. So that's uh, pretty much the type of content that's in the thing. And then there's the form itself. Um, so you've got to provide your full name, your home address, uh, your personal phone number, so your personal phone or mobile number and your date of birth. And then comes the consent form itself. So the green section is, I want to receive the full course of coronavirus vaccine um, because there's no requirement on this for your parent or guardian if you're a teenager, if you're between 12 and 15 years old, um, to sign this. There is a space for them to sign it if they wish to, but there's no requirement for them to sign it. Uh, but the other point about this is that the form gives you an option either to, to say you want the full course of coronavirus vaccine or you don't want to have the coronavirus vaccine, in which case you've got to explain why you don't want it. Uh, so they're gathering the data either way. Um, now, my understanding is that if you don't give this form back, if your kids are at school and you don't give the form back, then there's a, a default that the consent is not given. Therefore, the vaccine will not be given. Um, so. Certainly, I would have thought that most people wouldn't be wanting to uh, uh, explain why they don't want the coronavirus vaccine. But this last section was the bit that uh, grabbed me because, of course, there is no requirement for a parent or a guardian to sign this. Um, so it talks about the Gillick guidelines checklist. The information below is required by the, immuni the immunizing clinician if the consent form is not signed by a parent carer and the young person wants to receive the immunization. A young person has competency to consent when they understand which immunization is to be given, understand what coronavirus is, understand the risks of not having the vaccine and the possible side effects of the vaccine, can retain the information, can use or weigh up the information provided as part of their own decision-making process. The child, the young person is free from any pressure to consent and can communicate that decision to the healthcare professional. Now, there are a number of things that struck me about this little form. First of all, uh, I think we asked on a previous uh, program, who is it is going to be making an analysis or an assessment of whether a child is Gillick competent or not? And it's quite clear there, it is the immunizing clinician uh, that will make, be making that decision. Um, and the immunizing clinician has to take yes or no to each of those. And I presume that it's only if all are yes that they can proceed. But for example, um, understands the risks and the possible side effects of the vaccine. Well, as we just showed you, the document itself doesn't provide any detailed information on the risks or side effects of the vaccine at all. And if the requirement there for Gillick competence is based on that short paragraph that was published earlier in the document, then that's not really under understanding at all. Um, can retain the information. What about a child or young person free from any pressure to consent? Where might the pressure be coming from? Peer pressure, perhaps? 
Will that be considered whenever Gillick competency is being considered by the immunizing clinician? I don't think so. And so I'm, I find this form uh, quite dis disturbing, Brian. Uh, uh, certainly. Well, I'm looking at this fresh on screen and, and what I don't understand is it says a young person has competence, competency to consent when they, colon, and then it's all questions. Alex, this seems to me to be grammatically incorrect and deliberately confusing. These should be statements there was then. Go ahead. There was, uh, you're quite right, and there was a missing possessive uh, apostrophe in the guidance for the children and teenagers as well. Uh, perhaps this is because, as you've shown on screen there, this questionnaire comes from the UK Health Security Agency, which has only existed since the 1st of April. Welcome to the biosecurity state. It's now a full-ranking agency. Uh, but for those who are abroad who are wondering what Gillick is, even our Scots viewers might not know because this is English law, uh, back about 35 years ago, uh, a mother took a case against her local health board in West Norfolk because her teenage daughter, uh, who was several years underage, uh, had been given contraceptives by a school nurse uh, without the parent being informed or asked for permission. And uh, this was a court-made, uh, ultimately judge-made law uh, in, a, in a rather nefarious way that the child had Gillick competencies if these tests were met. This hasn't been through Parliament. The will of Parliament, the representatives of the people, has not been sought. Uh, on this. So this is an irreversible change to young people's bodies. And it hasn't been through Parliament. Uh, and the uh, the leg to stand on, the, uh, the, the, the coat hanger that they hope will bear the weight of it all, is simply an, an aside or a piece of case law that came out of a, sorry to say, but a, a provincial case uh, on giving a girl condoms 35 years ago. Okay. Thanks for that. Well, uh, if we stay on health, we stay on the NHS. And uh, this morning I had a phone call to say that the NHS was talking about the famous subject of intersectionality. Now, if you're not into this uh, newspeak uh, term, uh, it's going to come up more and more. But uh, we'll take you back to the start of things. And this is the NHS Workforce Race Equality Standard. So we're back here in, I think, it's 2000. 14, where we're looking at um, uh, the NHS taking action to ensure that employees from black and minority ethnic backgrounds have equal access to carer opportunities and receive fair treatment in the workplace. Now, of course, many people would say, what's wrong with that? And we can say in the first instance, nothing is wrong with it. But as we are going to see, it's what has happened to these policies because mission creep uh, becomes uh, a great understatement. Who's involved? Well, if you have a look on the NHS uh, website itself, you can find this lady, Yvonne uh, Coghill, and she commenced nurse training at the Middlesex Hospital. And then she was appointed to the Department of Health as private secretary, the chief executive of the NHS, and Nigel Crisp. And she's now currently director of the um, res implementation in NHS England and Deputy President of the Royal College of Nursing. Uh, so what are we talking about now? Well, let's get into this document. This is the University of the West of England. has been working with the NHS. And here's the document, which is Inclusion, the DNA of Leadership and Change, a review of theory, evidence and practice on leadership, equality, diversity and inclusion in the National Health Service. This document I'm going to describe as incredible uh, because it shows the amount of effort that the NHS is now putting into intersectionality. 
and uh, we'll dig into some of the detail. Uh, but we've got 179 pages. Uh, what's on those pages? Thoughts, theories, personal opinion, pseudoscience. There is nothing in this document whatsoever about treatment and caring for anybody who's in the NHS system. Uh, here's the contents. If you want to freeze this particular screen, you can see it all. Uh, but a lot of words, uh, but not a lot of substance, as we're going to see. Uh, but let's pick up on the trail. So this is part of it. This is one of the uh, paragraphs. It's talking about the DNA of leadership and change, the pace and scale of these global conversations as they relate to identity, diversity and inclusion have at times rushed ahead of our, quote, collective abilities to contemplate their meaning. Things happening so fast, the NHS doesn't really understand what's going on. And yet as leaders in health and care systems, we need to do, do just that through hearing and developing our understanding of these and similar conversations in our organization and the diverse voices within them that we will learn how to transform the health and care system towards inclusion and secure a sustainable future. So this has gone way beyond looking after the black community. We're now into a very, very different and much broader uh, field. So here's shifting the narrative. This is one section from the document. As noted by Nemhard and Edmondson, 2006, creating understandable risk aversion that can inhibit willingness to engage in the chaos and uncertainty of team brainstorming and experimentation. A lack of psychological safety inhibits learning, which can fundamentally affect the likelihood of mistakes, not to mention its effects on diversity and inclusion. Alex, we're, we're very short of time, but I'm going to say to you, the reason I picked up on this, uh, this um, paragraph is because we have this very, very confusing, devious, new speak language, which I'm going to suggest the average person in the NHS who's worried about caring for patients will have no way of understanding what they're really talking about. Uh, to reduce it to a grammatical analysis uh, core, this is a noun heavy paragraph, and particularly in written English, that does people's heads in. They want to see main verbs, uh, who does what to whom. And this is uh, overblown uh, Latinate uh, noun, noun, noun chaining, and it's meant to be impenetrable. Uh, but it is itself an example of sending out the opposite message, NLP style, as the British government has boasted it can do in written documents, as you've said to Rainer Fulmich, sending out the opposite message to what it claims to be saying. Paragraph claims to be saying, if people make their way through it, um, we want to avoid brain fog so that people know what they're doing. But when you try to read the paragraph, the brain fog mists descend on your own head. Right, So yeah. it is, it's playing a, a switcheroo on you. Thank you for that, Alex. Now, let's get on to this next one, because what we can show here very clearly that if you think the NHS is fo focusing on the NHS and treating people who are sick or unwell, no, no, no. This is part of something much bigger, much more global. So this little paragraph says this, in order to shift towards a learning culture, leaders can help by creating an environment that's conducive to and fosters a shared vision. Marshall Gantz, who works at who worked exclusively with Barack Obama prior to and during his presidency, highlights the significance of crafting a compelling public narrative to inspire action and social change. So we're into an NHS document, but this document is now about changing the world. And we're going to do it along the lines of advisors to Barack Obama 
in order to change the whole public narrative globally. Um, so this is uh, part of the quote. Uh, social movement leaders tell new public stories, a stories of self, a story of us, a story of now. A story of self communicates the values that call one to action. A story of us communicates the values shared by those in action. A story of now communicates an urgent challenge to those values that demand actions now. Participating in a social movement not only involves a rearticulation of one's story of self, us, and now, but marks an entry into a world of uncertainty so daunting that access to sources of hope is essential. This is all making sure that people who are sick, injured in hospital become well, apparently, Mike. Yes. So let's have a look at who's who. Well, here's Marshall Gantz. Uh, I won't read all of this because of the time scale, but uh, uh, he was tied in uh, with a lot of civil organizing and um, um, grassroots movements across UK, uh, across the USA, beg your pardon there. And um, uh, he, he was on national executive. What is this man? He's a community activist who's then come back into the university system to teach. If we bring him up on screen here, this is, <clears throat> excuse me, the detail. In 2007-8, he was instrumental in design of the grassroots organization for the 2008 Obama for President campaign. Uh, then he got an award in 2010, but he's been in association with the global leading change network of organizers, researchers, and educators. And it goes on to say that they're working on organizing training and leadership development around the world. Uh, what's this to do with the NHS is the question every taxpayer should be asking. Uh, well, here's the leading change network. And surprise, surprise, the man leading it is Gantz himself. There he is, Marshall Gantz, with a couple of other people. Uh, here's the lady who's the chief executive. Don't really know much about her, but very interested in this man, Pejak Stoljic, uh, if I've pronounced that correctly, Director of Resident Engagement for Health Systems Transformation Project Rethink Health. So now we are jumping from the NHS to a global movement in health. And if we look through Rethink, uh, they say that uh, they're part of the Ripple Initiative, working with national and regional stewards to discover what it takes to design and execute transformative change and better and produce better health and well-being for all. So uh, this then leads us through to Foresight, uh, which is another initiative um, which is all about changing uh, health. Here's Foresight. Convening kickoff, we can design the future of health. So we thought we were into a document that was at least dealing with the NHS, but no, this is a global movement. And if I finalize here with these two ladies who sign off that University of the West of England NHS document, uh, Tracy Jolliffe, the Director of Inclusion, and Caroline Chipperfield, the Deputy Managing Director of the NHS Leadership Academy, they say this under both their signatures. Finally, remembering that in reading this text, that's the whole document, you demonstrate your commitment to the challenging but essential work of inclusion and the role that you as a leader can play in bring this much needed change. That mistake is in the document. Uh, so now we see the quality of the document. As collaborators, partners and allies, let us learn together how to work boldly and collectively with and across difference 
to turn this vision into our lived realities. And this is one of the key reasons I'm going to suggest to our audience that the NHS is a failing organization because this dross is getting greater um, precedence than treating people who are sick and injured in the NHS system. And the intersectionality agenda is growing. Uh, I'll just bring in this from the BBC to emphasize the point. Uh, so we're, we're going back to February, where the BBC is saying, can AI tackle racial inequalities in healthcare? But what do we find embedded in the article? Well, a quote from this lady, Paula Wheeler, uh, and uh, I flagged up there that in her early career, she was a, a global intercultural uh, media intern. So she seems to have some special media uh, backing. Uh, she said, I think it takes so much for a lot of us black folks to even get the doctor. Sorry, I think it takes so much for a lot of us black folks to even get to the doctor. Um, she's co-founder of Black Health, an organization that works to challenge racism and its impacts on black health. And she goes on to say to have that situation when you're there and you're not being listened to or heard and that you're being disrespected and treated badly, you know it just compounds the issue even further. So this is the BBC picking up on intersectionality within supposedly an AI article. Uh, but uh, clearly, um, BBC uh, is on the intersectionality agenda as well. Mm. Uh, Alex, uh, school children um, in Germany was this? Is, and I don't have details of which primary school, but this photograph, for those who are listening in audio only, shows, uh, I think, primary one, as we'd call them, uh, the youngest children going to school for the first time in a German school, very much an upper middle class school with a, a spotless parquet floor. But look, all the children are staring, I would say, almost dead eyed, certainly frightened into the camera with their masks on. But their well to do parents uh, who are pleased as punch with the situation are, of course, mask free because they're double jabbed, of course. So uh, the children need to wear the masks who, who, who got a, a statistically zero chance of catching COVID, let alone uh, dying from it. And uh, the parents are not. And this ties in well with what you were just uh, quoting about um, the racial minorities, as we're now, we're now supposed to call them us black folks, if you're one of them, I suppose. Um, they, they say that or their, their official authorised spokesmen say on their behalf that they are uh, reticent about going to the doctor. Well, this ties in quite well with that scene, which you wouldn't see in working class German schools. They're a bit more sensible than that, and they would realize the, uh, the double standards. It also ties in with the clinical commissioning groups, or basically commercial uh, fronts uh, in front of the NHS now in England, because when you showed the five worst and best performers for face-to-face -face consultations earlier in the news, Brian, it struck me that four or four out of the five of the worst performers that shove everyone onto the telephone uh, were wealthy, well-to-do parts of the northwest of England, and the best performing areas were largely some of the most disadvantaged parts of the north of England. It's odd that, isn't it? It's almost as if you can get away with more in Germany, Britain and America among the upper middle class because they have been mind-scripted to follow orders more than the lower orders have. Now, onto the, the continent now, we have seen a number of uh, people pushing back against police violence around the continent. This one has been captured by George the Greek trucker, GGT, on Brand New Tube, who's been a great ally and help to us in many ways over years. And uh, he has now uploaded this one uh, with the Portuguese judge, Dr. Rui de Fonseca e Castro, 
in a square in central Lisbon, taking the, the side of uh, protesters against uh, mask mandates and jab mandates. Um, they were supposedly illegally unmasked out on the streets of central Lisbon on a bright sunny September day. And the uh, police were coming in to beat them up. So we'll play this out silently because those listening in audio only are only going to hear raised voices in Portuguese here. But uh, Judge Ruiz is uh, confronting the police and saying, are you gentlemen really going to hit people for not wearing a mask? And they reply in the red subtitles, yes, we have orders. I don't have to answer you. The judge gets right up and with cojones or the Portuguese equivalent and says, look, I'm looking in your eyes and you are going to get arrested today if you lay in. Do you understand? Do you understand? I'm looking into your eyes. I'm not afraid of you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Beware of yourself if you hit people, because if you do, there are things that need to be known. And I'll tell your boss, tell your boss. At this point, the Portuguese police get a bit uppity. They don't slink away as other countries policemen might do, but they try to uh, uh, regain a kind of false moral ascendancy by just in a moment after this point saying, look, uh, what kind of example are you setting? Are you being a positive role model? Uh, I think that comes just about now. The judge is saying, these people are here peacefully. You are not going to hit them for not wearing a mask. And the police get uppity with him and say, you're not setting much of an example, are you, mate? Which, wrong move. Judge Ruiz says, listen, don't touch me. Uh, I don't need to justify myself, which, of course, is the correct answer. I don't need to justify myself to you, for false policeman. Uh, put yourself back in your place. Never mind you telling me the judge to get back in my box. You put yourself back in your place. I'm a judge. I'm above you in the pecking order. Do you understand? This is my place above you. Do you understand? Admirable stuff here from Judge Ruiz de Fonseca there on the Terreiro do Pacho, quite a big square in central Lisbon. Um, okay, this is a civil law jurisdiction. Uh, we have judges and other judicial people watching from the English-speaking world uh, who are rightly proud of the superiority of the common law. Uh, how many of you have been outside to the police uh, and stood up for the public uh, in, a, in a manner like this? Uh, you have all the advantages he doesn't have. Uh, he has a system of civil law in which a policeman can turn up and say, I is the state, uh, you is nothing, obey orders, and he isn't having it. So why are you lot having it? Over to Australia. Uh, this has been tweeted uh, in recent days by the account Valglass 2.0. Uh, she, I think it's a lady, writes, is this how we treat women in Australia? I hope this lady gets herself a very good lawyer. The police have overstepped the for your safety boundaries and then some. This relates to an Eastern European lady who I think came as a child to southwest Sydney, a working class part of, the, of Australia's biggest city. She's named Natalia and she was studying for nursing. She was in the third year. Here we'll see what happens to her in uh, Sydney with the New South Wales police for a few seconds. And then she does about a one and a half minute piece to camera in her nursing uniform. Say your name. Can I get your name, please? Thank you. What's their names? What's your names? You are disgraced. What's your names? Do you know the names? What the, what department are you from? What station are you from? What station are you from? Good afternoon. Good evening, Australia. My name is Natalia, and I'm a mother of two children from Southwest Sydney. I have never been in trouble with the police. I have no criminal records. I'm a year three nursing student. But after being incidentally 
assaulted by the New South Wales Police. I'm resigning in protest. I was simply walking in the park with the other female friend. When male riot police tackled me to the ground, demanded I produce my documents and lifted my skirt, exposed my underwear and private parts. I sustained injuries and bruising to my legs and part of my body. I feel violated. I feel traumatized. I have been studying to become a nurse for the last three years of my life and in protest to the government campaign of fear and tyranny, I resign in protest. I know that thousands of other Australian doctors and nurses feel the same way as I do. To the men of Australia, where are you? The woman needs your help and protection. Police are out of control, bashing the elderly and incidentally assaulting mothers and health professionals. The government general need to step in and stop this madness. Natalia proves at the end there that she understands the Australian constitution and the common law better than uh, wealthy native-born Australians, actually, uh, because she calls it rightly on the, at the end there for the Queen's personal representative in Australia, the Governor-General, to step in. In the mid-70s, the Governor-General did just that to get Gough Whitlam out of the Prime Minister's post because he was uh, not on board with the Five Eyes sufficiently. And uh, now it seems the Governor-General is asleep or claims that he can't do anything about the conduct of New South Wales police. And Alex, isn't it amazing if, if, if it wasn't Australia, if it was some, we'll say, a country heading towards the third world status, uh, that behaviour internally would mean that UK would be saying, well, we're not doing trade deals with this kind of disgraceful country. And yet we're now going to do very expensive nuclear deals with a country that's got this level of brutality in it. And why are the police behaving like this? Well, of course, all of them will not behave like it because they won't agree with it. But this is the reframing of police. This is the way they've been trained. And this is the use of applied psychology to break down their natural um, uh, personal limits as to what they will do. So these people heavily reframed. And this shows you how dangerous the applied psychology is. And let's not forget, it was the British government, the cabinet office, applied psychology that was sold to Australia and the US. So the UK is the source of this dangerous applied psychology and it needs to be rooted out. Mm. Uh, we're out of time. We're out of time. OK, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much to our uh, viewers today. Thank you for everybody who is supporting the UK column. Uh, if you've got a friend or colleague who's not watching, perhaps you'd pass on the message, share what we're giving you because that's why we produce it. And uh, let's get the uh, wider message out to a much bigger audience as to what's happening in UK and worldwide. Thank if you're a UK call member and you're watching on the live stream, hold on for a few minutes and we'll be back with uh, extra. Indeed. OK, thanks for joining us. Bye bye.